Is it the chair or is it the person who's sitting in the chair? This is always the question that I ask myself when I'm learning about somebody who's very successful or some organization that was really successful. And it's always really hard and basically impossible to separate the two because you can never recreate those exact same circumstances with those exact same people and run a complete what if alternate reality. But with Louis B. Mayer, who sort of founded and ran MGM, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, the most powerful and largest film studio of its time. With Mayer, we have a data point. We do have a what if, and this is horse racing. Because Louis B. Mayer, while also being the head of MGM, built one of the great horse racing stables in all of America, probably all of the world. And it's going to sound crass for me to say this, but there are actually some similarities that Mayer himself draws between buying and breeding and training and racing horses and running a film studio. Oddly enough, horse racing may provide us, at least in the case of Louis B. Mayer, some small insight as to whether it was the chair or it was the guy sitting in the chair. And so this today will be the story of Louis B. Mayer, a Russian immigrant who grew up in Canada. He started out reselling old junk in New York City, became a movie theater owner in small town Massachusetts. He grew into a multi-theater owner, then a film distributor, film producer, and finally became the head of, an, of the largest and most powerful and influential film studio the world had ever seen. He was a self-made man with, as some people would call it, a psychopathic need for power. He seemed to be a born gambler. He was a great showman. And uh, he may not have been actually a great producer of films, but he did seem to be a great judge of talent and ability. He knew how to find and, and hire the right people and put him in the right jobs. And so let's talk about Louis B. Mayer. Our primary source today will be a book by Bosley Crowther, and it's called Hollywood Raja, The Life and Times of Louis B. Mayer. Louis B. Mayer was born in Russia. We don't know exactly when, probably 1882 or 1885. His mother wasn't exactly sure. When his family left Russia, they moved to uh, Canada, to the town of St. John, which is within the New Brunswick province. Uh, St. John was a lumber milling and iron making town. Not a lot of fellow Jews for the Jewish immigrant from Russia. Louis grew up working class. He would hunt for scrap metal on the streets to make a little money as a kid. Not unusual in that kind of town in, the, in that era. This would have been right around 1890. Louis's mother was a very kind and warm figure in his life, in, in very stark contrast to his father. Louis did not like his father. He feared and uh, resented his father. And Louis really gravitated toward his mother and what he saw as a really pure and, and virtuous love. This is going to play a role later down the line in Louis's taste as a film producer. And as Louis grew up, he had his eye on the United States. And so in 1904, so he would have been around 20-ish years old, he moves from St. John to Boston, Massachusetts. And he did initially what he had been doing in St. John, what he knew how to do resell junk. He was doing this in Boston. He eventually moves down to New York City, bigger scene, more people, completely struck out. His, his junk reselling and scrap metal reselling business did horribly there. And he moves back to Boston with his tail between his legs. And he's almost bankrupt at this point by his early 20s. And it's upon returning to Boston where Louis's life will change. This is when he begins his career in the film industry. To set up Mayer's entry into film. Let's talk for a couple of minutes about what the industry was like at this point, because it's extremely primitive. 
in the early 1900s, before, let's say, 1903, films didn't really have much narrative structure. There wasn't much storytelling going on. Films tended to be uh, just people walking around, and the attraction for the audience was just the novelty of seeing a film. In 1903, The Great Train Robbery will be released, and this is a movie point the way forward for the industry, with film no longer just being a novelty, but as a means of telling a story. It will broaden people's minds about how you can create drama and suspense because it will feature parallel editing where the director cuts back and forth from two different things in two different places happening at the same time. And so by 1907, as Mayer's going to get into the business, movies or flickers, as they were still known at the time, they were still short and simple. The Great Train Robbery is about 13 minutes long, and it was representative of the kind of movies you'd have by 1907. A lot of hijinks or holdups and pursuits, some very simple, quick love stories. Theaters at the time were not usually designed for movies. They were too new. And so a theater in your local neighborhood might be just a big room with a bunch of chairs in it. And what the theater would be showing on any given night or any given week would be dependent on what the theater wanted to program. It may be a movie. It may be a little stage production. It could be some vaudeville act. It could be sword swallowers. Until this era, the movies themselves were not a business unto themselves. They were one thing you could program in a theater. This is going to start changing around the time Mayer gets into the business, in which theaters will begin being built specifically for showing the economics of the film business at the time were extremely primitive as well. Movies were deficit financed by the producer. So the producer would come up with a sack of money and they would make the movie and then he'd sell it to a distributor, uh, typically at a price per foot, per physical foot of film, around 10 cents per foot back then. And then the distributors would take the films to local uh, theaters and sell prints to, to the, each of these theaters. Ticket prices around 1907 was about 10 cents a ticket. If you now think about the incentives for everyone in this value chain, you get an interesting tension in the system. The theater owners can only charge basically the same price for all movies, right? The movies weren't that different from each other. And so he's only going to be able to charge about a dime per ticket, regardless of what the movie is. And there's no obvious value in a movie being longer because you're still only getting to charge a dime for it. On the other side, the producers, if they can come up with enough money and convince distributors it's worth paying more, the producer has an incentive to make it longer, maybe not better, but certainly longer, because then he can charge the distributor more money uh, because it's all priced per physical foot of film. So that's the state of the film business at the time. The natural incentives were to keep films generally shorter, simpler. Even though they had narrative at this point, there's still more of a novelty. In 1907, Mayer will open his first movie theater called the New Orpheum. It'll be in the town of Haverhill, which is 30 miles north of Boston. And Mayer will risk everything on this. He will spend every dime he's got. And uh, he seemed like a man with not much to lose at this point. It was touch and go there for a while. He didn't really know the business, and so he's learning on the fly. And it was one purchase that he made that really, I don't want to say turned things around, but really generated the first real amount of profits for the new Orpheum Theater. And that was a passion play, a story about Jesus. Louis picked it for the Christmas season. This was a huge hit for him, and he was able to fill his, his little theater to capacity every night for a while. It reinforced this sense he had, going back to his relationship with his mom, this idea of virtue and even religion belonged on the screen. This was not universally held belief at the time, but for Mayer, who'd had that virtuous connection with his mother growing up and a boy's love for his mother that he had, this this concept of religion and virtue being on the screen as, as something that people should aspire to and appreciate in movies, all the success of this passion play did was reinforce for Mayer this belief he probably already had. And so this is his ability to point to it and say, aha, I knew it. This is what the people actually want and it's what's good for them.
now with a somewhat successful theater. Mayer did a lot of networking around Haverhill. He put together a syndicate of investors to launch a second theater. They opened the Colonial Theater, and now Mayer's a player. He's not a, a single theater owner. Now he's a man who has multiple theaters. Still very much of a small pond he's playing in, but now he looks like a big fish in it, at least. Mayer is, is throughout his career, he does a really good job of always looking for how do you become the bigger fish in whatever pond you're playing in. And his ambitions don't end here. The next thing that Mayer will set his sights on is distribution. Louis said this distribution thing actually seems like a more scalable business. Rather than owning all these little theaters and having to manage all these little businesses with physical infrastructure, I'd rather be in the distribution business. There I can command the whole territory. I can have direct relationships with the film producers, maybe even influence the kind of movies that are going to be made by them. And then I'll control what movies are going out to all these local theaters. So he decides, I want to get into the distribution business. Start reaching out to all the theaters in New England saying, hey, we've got access to all these great movies. Did they really? Not really. But Mayer, understanding the showmanship you need in this business, said, hey, let's just start telling people, all these theater owners, that we've got a lot of great movies. And then once we've got all these customers lined up, it'll be easy to go to the producers and say, hey, we've got all these theaters all over New England. Let's do a deal to distribute your, your movies there. And so he, he gets into this, the distribution business, and he already now has his sights set on, you know, how do I upgrade the size of my pond to the next size up? And what he does is he joins a group of producers and regional distributors from around the country who put, put together a bunch of money, film productions, in exchange for distribution rights and ownership stake in the films. So this is going to be called the Alco Film Corporation. The name doesn't really matter. This whole organization is going to last like a year. The concept is going to be important because it's going to happen again pretty soon. But basically what's going on is uh, they're solving a problem for the film producers. Film production back then was really just gambling. These guys didn't have distribution deals in place. So the film producers would just put a bunch of money into into the pot and they'd make the movie. And if it's good, then they'll make a lot of money on the upside when they sell it to theaters. But if it's not good, then they could lose a ton of money. There's no downside protection here. And so what this distribution group would do is basically pull together a bunch of money, all these distributors all over the uh, country, and say, hey, if you give us of rights and uh, a piece of the profits in the film, then we will give you money up front, right? So we'll de-risk some of your upfront investment and the amount of money you need to go get in advance. Alco wouldn't last long, as I mentioned. The guy who, who was actually set up to run the thing, he didn't have the title of president, I don't think, but he basically was the president of this consortium. He got scammed and all the money went away. And so Alco flames out within a year of being set up in the first place. Alco had been put together in 1914, flames out in 1915. Louis B. Mayer, uh, unhappy about Alco flaming out, he liked the model a lot, and so did a lot of other people. So Mayer quickly got a bunch of guys together, some of whom had been in the original Alco partnership, and they all locked themselves in a hotel in New York, and they hammered out a new version of the same concept, and they called it Metro Pictures. Mayor's title was secretary of this thing, and he got a salary as part of that, in addition to his ownership of his distribution company and his ownership of a few theaters. But more importantly, Mayer was a leader of putting this whole thing together. He was a small-time guy before all this, before Alco and before Metro. He was a regional guy who owned a few theaters, and he had this small kind of distribution outfit. Next thing, here's a national distribution consortium, and he's a, one of the major executives in charge of this thing. And he had uh, the exclusive rights through this consortium for all New England distribution of films. So really, Mayer has, through the, the partnership, he's created a way to elevate himself up to a national stage, uh, which is really extraordinary in, in just a short amount of time. So this is in 1915 they put together Metro Pictures. And something else huge will happen in 1915. This is another one of those turning points, just like when he goes back to Boston and, and opens the new Orpheum Theater. 1915 uh, will not only feature the creation of Metro Pictures, it will also feature the birth of a nation, that most problematic of American films directed by E.W. Griffith. 
was an extremely successful movie. In fact, that's really underselling the financial performance. It was, I think, the highest grossing movie until The Wizard of Oz, about to, over 20 years later, made a ton of money. We're not going to go into the, the details of it. It's an incredibly important movie from a, a narrative perspective and from a technical perspective. It's also very problematic because of the incredibly racist subject matter in the film. But for the purposes of Louis B. Mayer, what this became was his first real pile of money. He got the exclusive New England distribution rights for The Birth of a Nation, and he ended up needing to to pay the producers of the film $50,000 and entitle them to 10% of the net profits. And in return, he'd get these exclusive rights for the second run. Not the first run, but the second run, which at the time was not a guarantee of success that you would be able to take a movie people had presumably already seen and sell it again. But it turned out to be incredibly lucrative for Mayer. He invested $50,000. He had to go to get friends and family because he really, he had to go all in here. He didn't have 50 grand that he was able to drop on, on something like this. So just like that first theater in Haverhill, uh, the new Orpheum, where he had to go scrape together money and go all in, that's what he's doing here with Birth of a Nation. And that $50,000 turned into over a million dollars for his distribution company and him personally pulling down uh, over a quarter of a million dollars. And this is really what gives Louis B. Mayer the financial freedom to set up the next phase of his career, which will in turn drive everything that comes after. Mayer's next step is to become a film producer. Something he'd been talking about, even when he just had one or two theaters back in Haverhill, he was talking about making movies in his own backyard. Right? But he'd always had an eye on partly to ensure a, uh, a solid pipeline of quality movies for his distribution business and for his theaters. Really also, uh, making movies is cool now, and it was cool then. And so he, uh, he was naturally drawn to it. Now he had the money, and through his distribution contacts and business through Metro, he had the ability to, to actually do it in a way that was bigger and somewhat less risky than normal. Movies back then generally was all basically private gambling on a very large and risky scale. Mayer gets into producing in 1916, and from 1916 through 1923, he goes in and out of several producer distribution relationships. And he'd be a small-time producer during this time. He was on a national stage with distribution, but he was not the big time. But he was developing thoughts about how movies should be made and what was important. For example, he recognized early on that stars could be a ticket to success. Right? This was actually pretty well known by the time Mayer gets into filmmaking. Quote, stars were the most conspicuous and dependable insurance of success. Customers usually flocked to see their pictures no matter what they were in. So clearly was this evident that producers usually spent more advertising the stars than on the stories bought for them, end quote. It's not surprising that a lot of people, like friends of mayors in the film industry, would literally refer to people like writers and directors as incidentals. And they would say, Louis, why would you spend any real amount of money on incidentals? The story and the director and all this, none of that matters. You just got to get a good star in there and people will come see it. Louis B. Mayer did agree that the stars were very important. But he disagreed with those other people, and he said, guys, like the, the story matters, the director matters. Now, he didn't think he knew how to do those things himself necessarily, but he did understand their importance. During this time, he's refining his ability to identify good talent, and he signs his first major actress. Her name was Anita Stewart. She was a big star working in New York at a company called Vitagraph, and he lures her away. Uh, not with a much larger paycheck, but by promising her better stories. She was unhappy with the kind of crap stories that she was getting. And so Louis B. Mayer says, I'm going to get you the best scripts and the best directors. It's not clear that really panned out for her later on. She said, I probably should have stayed where I was at Vitagraph. But I think Louis B. Mayer understood what, what Anita Stewart wanted. And he understood that ideally you would have better movies. Louis B. Mayer saw the narrative potential that, not that he was the only person to do so, but he was one of the producers who did see uh, the value in that, and that allowed him to go out there 
and start making some connections with movie stars and directors and writers who didn't just see them as commoditized inputs, but actually saw them as unique ways of making a great movie. And Mayer didn't know anything about production when he started producing movies. So he would just spend hours and hours on film sets. He'd be listening and he'd be watching the director. And some of the directors would get really annoyed with him asking, you know, why are you doing this that way? Why are you doing this other thing the other way? Why, why'd you tell her, her to do that? And sometimes the directors would get so furious with the guy. It's like having a kid pulling at your shirt every, every 30 seconds. But this was his school. This was Louis V. Mayer's film school. During this time period, he ends up moving from the East Coast to L.A., and it's 1923 that will be the next pivotal year in Mayer's career. So the last one was in 1915 when he gets those exclusive rights for Birth of a Nation. And he spends 1916 through 23 getting into the producing game, figuring out the kinks, learning a lot. And in 1923, he meets a young guy named Irvin Thalberg, and these two men would become very close friends and confidants. They would form one of the great creative and commercial partnerships in all of film history. Irving Zalberg was running production for Universal Pictures. He had been running production since he was like 20 years old. He's unhappy at Universal. Even though he ran the studio very well, he was known for being this boy wonder. Above him at the ownership level, he was very unhappy with the way the company was run and organized. It was very disorderly. And so Mayer gets introduced to Thalberg and hires him. And this would become a theme for Mayer. I'm not sure if he actually felt like he needed Irving Thalberg at the time. But what Mayer would come back to time and again in his career, and usually it would pay off for him, is when he would find really good people that he thought he could use, he would hire them, even if he didn't have an exact job for them. And through the 20s and 30s and 40s, this is how he amasses this massive stable of executive talent, as well as acting and directing and writing talent. Mayer has this point of view of, if I can just hoover up all the good people, then good things will happen. And he, he will largely turn out to be right. When Thalberg leaves Universal to come work for Mayer, this is actually a big jump. And by big jump, I mean jump down, not up for Thalberg. And here he is running Universal. Um, not the best studio in Hollywood, but certainly he's a very well-known figure in Hollywood. Mayer is, at this time, nowhere near one of the top producers. And there were a lot of producers in this exact situation of Mayer. They're clawing that to get the minor stars, the B-listers, and the directors who don't have exclusive contracts. To describe the contributions that Thalberg would make to his partnership with Louis B. Mayer as critical is probably still underselling his role here. The man is utterly indispensable to the success of MGM and a lot of what gets attributed to Louis B. Mayer during this time. Thalberg, people describe him as a creative genius with movies. He seemed to have this ability to look at a script or a scene or a whole movie, and he could see the forest through the trees, he wouldn't get bogged down in like the 50 little things you could do to fix this movie. He could zero in on the one or the two or three things that if you fix those things, everything else works. I and mean, that's how you can take a mediocre movie and make it good or a good one into something great. And because of this, he was uh, actually respected by quite a few filmmakers, writers and directors and actors. He didn't get along with everybody. He had a lot of famous fights with guys like Eric von Stroheim, who were really uncompromising in their vision. But by and large, he actually got a lot of respect from the creative community because he truly came across as helpful rather than interfering in the art of the film. The man had incredibly high standards for films and what they, they can and should be. He was always focused on getting the best possible version of the movie on the screen. He was involved in every decision, especially during script development and pre-production, everything from costumes to dialogue to locations to the color of the paint on the walls, even in a black and white movie. He would be incredibly involved in everything. As a result of that and his natural temperament, he was not one to dish out blame when things didn't work out very well. He viewed himself as the guy who 
was responsible for everything. So why would he blame someone else? Because the responsibility was his. And at the same time, and this was unusual, he never put his name on a film. Not once do you see during his time as studio chief produced by Irving Thalberg. Only later when he becomes an independent producer do you see that. But during his time as studio chief, never do you see him doing this. And his, his quote on this matter was something to the effect of, any credit that you can give yourself isn't worth having. I don't know if he's inspired by the Groucho Marx quote about, I don't want to belong to any club that would have me as a member, but I think it's indicative of how he saw his role and the status uh, associated with it, which is everyone who mattered knew who he was and what he did. With Thalberg overseeing day-to-day -day studio decisions. This really gave Mayer the opportunity to do a lot of hobnobbing around Hollywood. A lot of networking, this will become really relevant later as he expands his own circle of friends and allies outside of Hollywood. Uh, so you can think of the partnership as Thalberg is the creative guy focused on making the stuff every day. Mayer is uh, a combination of the money guy and the sales guy. He's out there meeting with distributors and, and theater owners and, and making all sorts of other friends to expand the scope of their business. And so together with Thalberg focused on making the movies and Mayer focused on sort of running the business and monetizing it, You've got this sort of classic uh, relationship, like you might see in a tech company today, where you have a technical co-founder and a, a business co-founder fights with. And Mayer's current film distribution deals left him in a precarious financial position. He had deals which required him to output a certain number of movies a year, and in return, they would guarantee him uh, a fixed sum of money per movie, plus profits if there were any later on. Typically, that was like $125,000 upfront guarantee, plus 50% of the profits to Mayer. The problem is, a lot of his movies cost more than $125,000 for him to produce, so he was at risk for any overages over $125,000. So Mayer is in a financially precarious situation until in 1924. Another great thing happens. Right? In 1924, the year after he brings on Thalbert, Mayer will get introduced to Marcus Lowe. This is where it all comes together. Marcus Lowe owned Lowe's Theaters, which was a, a very large, probably the largest or one of the largest chains of theaters in America. And there had been a big downturn in the film industry in 1923, the year prior. And, and in the course of building out his theater empire, Marcus Lowe also bought Metro Pictures, the consortium that we talked about earlier. Eventually, the whole thing fizzled, and Marcus Lowe ended up buying it from the consortium. However, he didn't know how to run a movie distribution company, nor did he really want to. And so Metro Pictures was not run very well. Marcus Lowe was very dissatisfied with it. At the same time, there was a company out there called the Goldwyn Company, started originally by Samuel Goldwyn, although he'd been forced out by it by this point. And the guy running it, Frank Godsell, he was unhappy with how that was being run for him. Basically, they're having similar problems as Metro. You might say they've got good assets, but they need better management. And Marcus Lowe and Frank Godsell got together and said, why don't we put together Metro and Goldwyn? We put these things together and we'll call it Metro Goldwyn Corporation. And that'll be, that way we'll have two medium things. We'll come together. It'll be one bigger thing, run production and distribution company. But we still need somebody to run this whole thing. At the same time, Marcus Lowe meets Louis B. Mayer and Irving Thalberg on a trip to L.A. And he's very impressed with what he sees. Mayer and Thalberg were running a tight ship. Thalberg doing a great job on the creative side. Mayer doing a good job balancing the, the, the financial aspects. So Marcus Lowe does what today we might call aqua hires the mayor companies, and brings over Louis B. Mayer and Irving Thalberg and the whole team over to run Metro Goldwyn Corporation. Mayer doesn't get his name on it yet. It's not MGM just yet. It's still called uh, Metro Goldwyn. He'll get his name attached in a few years, but we'll just start calling it MGM. Mayer will be the head of the studio, and then Marcus Lowe will oversee the theaters. What's important here is that Louis B. Mayer and Irving Thalberg, they're hired executives now. They have a boss. Louis B. Mayer may be the head of the studio, but he doesn't own the company. In fact, he doesn't even have any equity in the parent company. Mayer and Thalberg will be extremely highly paid executives, but they are salarymen, not owners in Lowe's Corporation. First order of business for Mayer and Thalberg, 
get the studio running better. As we said, Metro and Goldman were not working very well. Mayor and Dahlberg start looking at operations and figuring out what works well and what doesn't, and they eliminate duplication of effort and start whipping the directors into shape, is, is the way Crowther puts it. Directors at the time, guys like D.W. Griffith, saw themselves as the artists in the medium. Um, and they saw the, the money meant back east as a necessary evil of providing the capital for, for their art form. And through a combination of force of will and the growing size and importance of the MGM studio, as well as, frankly, a little bit of a, a dip that the movie industry has in the early 20s, Mayor and Dahlberg take advantage of that and really start putting people under exclusive contracts with the kind of rights and limitations that are much more favorable for MGM. And so they really start creating what we think of as that studio system that will become very popular throughout the 20s and in the 30s, in which MGM has tons and tons of, of movie stars and directors and writers uh, under exclusive contract. And so between getting the directors in line, recruiting lots and lots of star talent and improving operations and processes around the studio, Thalberg and Mayer whipped the place into shape pretty quickly. And by the late 1920s, they've got the best and biggest movie studio in the country. These are the halcyon days that everyone's going to look back on when everything ran really well. So Thalberg's firing on all cylinders. The studio's going to be doing well. It's going to generally be a time of growth for the industry as a whole, not to say that there aren't uh, down years, but generally speaking, film is expanding through the late 20s and, and into the 30s, despite the depression. However, an important thing happens in 1927, actually two important things. One of them is very important for MGM and the other one's important for everybody in film. In September of 1927, just three years after bringing over Mayer and Dahlberg, Marcus Lowe dies. He dies in September. And a man named Nicholas Skank takes over at the corporate level. He was one of Marcus Lowe's number two guys. And he will become Louis B. Mayer's boss. So that happens in September. The following month in October, The Jazz Singer is released. The Jazz Singer, of course, the movie that really heralded the coming of sound. Sound movies had been coming for a while. Some people really believed in it. Some people didn't. Some of the studios like Fox and Warner Brothers went all in on it. The Jazz Singer was released by Warner Brothers. Some studios like MGM were not ahead on it. And uh, Louis B. Mayer and uh, Nicholas Kegg actually were both fairly skeptical of sound. And so once the Jazz Singer came out, actually, uh, Mayer just delegated the whole sound project to, to Thalberg. And this was going to change the nature of movies. This is not just a technical change in movies. It really requires more complicated stories, more rich characters, more subtlety in the emotions. It's, it really ushers in a change in the way scripts are written, in the way films are done in pre-production, obviously the way they're physically produced, capturing sound, and then in editing as well. The entire process changes quite a bit. You know, you think about in a silent movie, they would just throw the scenario together. They'd have the story, they'd write it. But really what you find is you can change so much of it in the editing room and on set, because if you're not capturing sound on set, then the director can just yell, you know, to an actor, oh no, turn left, turn right, go upstage or do this with your arms. And you can just change things on the fly or you can change things in post-production quite easily by just changing what a title card, I'd say. And so... What happens with sound is a lot of that is no longer possible. You can't just swap out a title card where a character used to say one thing and now they say something else. You can't do that anymore if you have recordings of them saying things. Thalberg, the boy wonder, adapts to this new world extremely well. His gift for choosing good material, developing it the right way with the right people, that all carries over extremely well to the sound era. He has no problems, at least none that seem obvious here 100 years later. However, Mayer would not adapt as well. This wouldn't be obvious right away because he wasn't really the details guy these days. Right? He's got Thalberg running the studio and deeply involved in every single movie they're making. And they're making like 50 movies a year, 55-0. Thalberg is, is intimately involved in every one of them, so Mayer doesn't have to be. But as we will find out down the road when Thalberg is no longer there, Mayer is not able to 
perform creative producing in the sound era as effectively as he was in the much simpler silent era of the 1910s. But Thalberg is there at this time, and because of Thalberg's creative leadership, the studio navigates the transition to sound fairly seamlessly, and the studio is performing extremely well. And as it always happens, when a lot of people are successful together, people start looking at how much money everybody's making, and inevitably important people in the equation feel like they're not making as much as maybe they should be making. And the first thing that causes problems within MGM and Lowe's is that Louis B. Mayer is not very happy with the amount of money that he's making out of his Lowe's profit-sharing agreement. Mayer and Thalberg, in addition to their salary, have a bonus that is based on profitability of the studio. Mayer, used to run distribution and theater businesses, figures out that Lowe's is sort of cheating him and Thalberg on their bonus because they are moving the money around within the corporation such that it makes the studio look less profitable than it should and making the theater business, which receives the movies from the studio side, makes the theaters look more profitable than they should. So there's a lot of unhappiness. Fortunately, for everyone involved, everyone did realize, look, we've got a good thing going here. Let's not blow up the whole operation just because we're a little unhappy about the money. So uh, the mayor group, meaning Mayor and Dahlberg and a couple of other people, they all got huge raises. Mayor goes from one and a half thousand a week to two and a half thousand a week. Dahlberg goes from $650 a week to $2,000 a week. And they also got a minimum guarantee on the, on the profit sharing bonus of $500,000. And in return, the mayor group had to promise to pump out at least 44 movies a year for the parent corporation. And these movies wouldn't necessarily be exclusive to Lowe's. They might be, but usually Lowe's had more interest in just giving themselves a, a first window. So they'd show first in Lowe's theaters before uh, going to other competitors' theaters after that. Eventually, though, these problems around calculating the bonuses for Mayer and Bulberg off of you know, divisional performance rather than corporate, eventually that just became too much of a headache and people were always suspicious of each other. So finally, in the long run, they all eventually agree, yeah, let's just calculate the profit based on a smaller percentage of Lowe's corporation profitability rather than on just the MGM studio, thus eliminating the conflict of interest. Now everyone's on the same team and they were all fine with it. But what's funny here is Mayer is very unhappy about himself getting, you know, as he put it, you know, cheated out of some of the money he was entitled to. And he may have been. But Mayer himself had a long history cheating people out of money they were entitled to. All the way back to his days running theaters in Haverhill and being a distributor in New England, he was he cheated Samuel Goldman out of some money. Uh, you know, he said, oh, I'll pay you such and such amount of money up front and I'll pay you the other half later. The other half never showed up. And uh, this happened during Birth of a Nation. One of the investors, rather than giving her a share of the properties, gave her money back and, and made a flimsy excuse about it. And it's a little ironic that you see Mayer uh, really standing on ceremony here about his own bonus when he, he's just as guilty of it on the other side. And you, know, you look at Hollywood, even to this day, they have such a this bad reputation of cheating the talent out of their uh, their profit participation, right? Like there's, there's a joke in Hollywood that, quote, there is no net, end quote. Like there is no net profits for a film. That goes all the way back to the 1910s. It's a long and and, uh, and well-known tradition. And uh, Louis B. Mayer uh, was absolutely on both sides. And so now Marcus Lowe has died. The jazz singer has been released and, and ushered in the, the new upcoming era of sound films. But despite the fact that the film studio is doing very well, MGM is owned by Lowe's. And now that Marcus Lowe has passed away, that creates opportunities for other sharks swimming in the same waters. Enter William Fox. William Fox founded the Fox Film Corporation and built his company with a lot of aggression, a lot of debt. You could think of it as a Jenga tower built on, on layers of debt, which ironically, Rupert Murdoch would later build his own empire, which would eventually include Fox. Built it through a lot of aggressive M&A and a lot of debt in the, in the 1980s and 90s. But anyway, William Fox sees Marcus Lowe's passing as an opportunity. Fox owned not just a movie studio, but he also owned a lot of theaters. He, like 
like Mayer, for example. He started with a single little Nickelodeon theater in Brooklyn, and William Fox grew that into this massive chain and vertically integrated it with film production. He himself never made the move out west to L.A. He, he liked being the money guy. He was more like a Marcus Lowe or, or an Adolf Zukor who came to, to own Paramount. William Fox was really a guy who, unlike Mayer, he just continued to see movies more or less as something to just sell, something to put into a theater. It's an input. Whereas folks like Mayer and especially Thalberg would see films as their own thing. A theater is just a place to show a movie. So William Fox approached Nicholas Skank and they worked out a deal quietly to sell the entire Lowe's Corporation, including MGM, to the Fox Corporation. They, they did it over time. This started in fall of 28, and this would take like a year to actually see through. Once the deal's already been announced, it's not closed. It's not a done deal yet, but they've announced that it's happening. Louis B. Mayer and Irving Thalberg find out, and they absolutely flip out because they, they, they're not a part of this deal. They're not, they're, you got Nicholas Skank, who just inherited this company, and he's selling it. He's making himself millions of dollars. But clearly, Louis B. Mayer is very unhappy, and so he um, he helps get the deal killed. How can Louis B. Mayer do that? Louis B. Mayer had not been spending the 1920s just working on movies. He had also become increasingly interested in politics. He had been cultivating some relationships. For example, he had made a good friend of William Randolph Hearst, the massive newspaper mogul. He'd set up Hearst's mistress, Marion Davies, with this lucrative production deal, making a bunch of movies for Hearst and Davies. And through Hearst, Mayer then leveraged that into a lot of influence with Herbert Hoover, who initially was a candidate for president and would eventually become president. And it was through Herbert Hoover that he is able to get the William Fox takeover of Lowe's killed. This isn't proven. The book makes it sound like it's pretty clear. I've, I've seen different stories in different books about whether this was exactly what happened. We do know this wasn't the only thing that killed the deal. What happened was, on the political side, the Department of Justice opens up an antitrust investigation at the wrong time for William Fox. So in October of 1929, as he's trying to get this deal done to buy Lowe's, stock market crashes. And all of William Fox's carefully placed Jenga blocks of debt really start to collapse. And so right when William Fox is having all these problems with the financing of his own company, then the antitrust thing happens, and then there's allegations of corruption and bribery. And that's where William Fox's story zags off into a weird direction. He actually ends up serving some jail time. But when it comes to MGM and Lowe's, this is it. He takes his big shot, and at least some people think Mayer helps get the whole thing killed. Clearly, Mayer is never going to trust Nicholas Skank again. They, they didn't love each other to begin with. They're different guys, right? You know, Skank is just the money man back east, as Mayer would say. And Mayer is kind of the, the crazy L.A. frivolous uh, Hollywood guy to Skank. So they never really loved each other. And now they just absolutely don't trust each other. And, and to compound problems... Dahlberg, who his whole life had been very frail, he had heart problems since he was a boy. Dahlberg became ill, seriously ill, in 1932. And at the advice of his doctors, Dahlberg takes leave. He goes to Germany to a spa for about eight months. Mayer and Skank decided they can't entrust the entire fate of the MGM studio to just this one guy with serious health problems. Louis B. Mayer will have to figure out how to run the studio without the guy who's been running the studio. He concluded that only one person in Hollywood could run MGM the way Thalberg had, meaning one person is the total package, the center of everything, the decision maker on everything. That's what Thalberg was. Mayer said, there's only one other person in Hollywood who can do it. It's David O. Selznick, the producer who actually had been at at MGM earlier, was actually married to one of Louis B. Mayer's daughters, so he's actually Louis's son-in-law. Uh, but Mayer said only David O. Selznick can do it. Louis tried in vain to convince Selznick to come back to MGM and run the studio. Selznick did not want to work for his father-in-law again, and so he said no. And Louis B. Mayer decided no one else can do this job, so what will happen is instead of having one person replace Thalberg, what we'll do is we'll reorganize the studio and we'll have... Um, what, what the author refers to as 
a peerage of producers, a classification of newts on a level above the directors or any other creative elements in the studio. And so this is really, it's a big departure because Thalberg had been the decision maker on literally everything, costume choices, a line of dialogue, uh, locations to shoot, you name it. Thalberg approved everything. And he would work directly with directors on films and writers and actors. Thalberg would get in there and make edits on a movie. He was that that hands-on. Mayer did not have any pretenses that he, he was going to be that hands-on. And so he created a level of producers. I think there were like three to five of them. And these folks would be overseeing all the creative elements, and then Mayer would oversee them. This raises an interesting question on what's the right way to organize for creativity and commercial success? They had something right. And by the way, they were not the only studio to have a, an operation like this. Daryl Zanuck, who had been running Warner Brothers, was very similar to Thalberg mechanically, not in personality at all. But mechanically, he was hands-on, making edits to movies, changing dialogue, working directly with actors and writers. And so even though today, here in the 21st century, when we look at academic literature about how do you foster creativity in organizations, usually what you don't see is a situation in which they say, one person makes literally all of the decisions and everyone else goes along with whatever that person says. That's not usually what people talk about. And you think about a, a great success story like Pixar in the film industry, tons of creativity and success there. They had that incredible run of movies in the 90s and 2000s. And that seemed to be a much more... I don't want to call it consensus-driven because it wasn't where everybody had to agree, but there was certainly a, a more democratized spirit of collaboration. And it's striking to me how different that is from the Irving Thalberg MGM or the Daryl Zanuck of Warner Brothers. What it implies to me is that you can do one or you can do the other if you have a, one person sitting at the top that person really needs to have the goods. Creative sensibilities with things like film, I don't know if it can be taught. It certainly seems Zanuck had it. There are definitely people who don't got it. Can people who don't got it be trained into people who got it? I, I don't know, probably to some extent. But my instinct on this is if you got one of those people like a Thalberg, it, it can be a good idea to just give them all the reins. It's not going to be as fun for everyone else who's working for and with them because they don't get to make any creative decisions. But at least you do get the elimination of bureaucracy, right? You get speed of decisions, you get clarity of vision, and you don't have decision by committee. What you have is one person's vision, essentially, and everyone else is helping to realize it. The other way you can try it is more of that Pixar approach, where you've got a lot of people in different levels of power. Um, but they're all creative people and they're all asked to be creative and you have an environment of trust and risk-taking such that people feel comfortable making bold or unusual or risky ideas and uh, that they don't have to feel like they're going to get fired or retaliated against by throwing out the crazy ideas. Unfortunately, the system Mayer sets up is the worst of both worlds. He's got a decision by committee. None of the top-down clarity of vision of a Thalberg system, but it also doesn't have the true creative freedom and risk-taking culture of a bottoms-up system. So what you've got is a bunch of people having to supply creative ideas into a committee system that doesn't reward creative or outside-the-box thinking. So it's under this new system when Thalberg returns from Germany after eight months abroad, that he comes back and he finds this new layer of producers in between the head of the studio and the directors. And rather than getting his old job back on top of the studio, because that would probably be too much for him and his weakened health state, he ends up being made just one of these producers, effectively demoting him even though he kept his salary and profit sharing and all that, effectively he is one of several now rather than the sole arbiter of the entire studio. He's told, oh, you'll have all the access to all the talent.
out, but not really, right? He's got to say, hey, I want Clark Gable for this movie. Can I have him? And if one of these other producers already has Clark Gable committed to doing a movie, Thalberg's not getting him. This is a rude awakening for Thalberg, not just structurally, but also morale seems to be quite low. The quality of the films, according to Thalberg, has dropped off. Thalberg writes a memo to, to Mayer, quote, I've never found the men in this institution completely demoralized and uninspired. Our standards have slipped, in my mind, tremendously. The pictures that I see, while far from bad and some quite good, are juvenile, immature, uninspired, and lacking that finish that characterized our product for so many years. End quote. This new organizational structure that Mayer put in place, it doesn't work. It definitely doesn't work for Thalberg. It really doesn't work that well for the studio either. The studio does quite well during this period financially, but creatively there's a big drop-off in the output, which is going to forecast the eventual decline of the studio. And relationship between Thalberg and Mayer begins to deteriorate and gets to the point where Nicholas Skank has to start mediating disputes between the two guys because they just won't help. By 1935, Thalberg will extricate himself from being a studio employee and will become a more independent producer. He'll still make movies for MGM, but he's got a much greater level of distance from management and from the studio. And he'll still make some very good movies. He makes Mutiny on the Bounty during this period. He began work on A Night at the Opera, which is a great Marx Brothers comedy. But then in 1936... Irving Thalberg dies. It started with what seemed like just a, a bad cold. It turned into pneumonia. And next thing you know, he was gone. Following decade or so after Irving Thalberg's death, so let's say 1937 through the 1940s, will be a decade which seems fantastic for MGM. And it looks like it on paper. They will make tons of money, but the seeds are being planted, which will eventually come home to roost in the late 1940s and 1950s. What Thalberg and Mayer had done together was set up this incredibly well-run machine of a studio with the largest collection of talent. Right? They really cornered the market on actors and directors and writers. They didn't have all of them, but they had a ton of them, more than anyone else, and that gave them the ability to command a massive box office. But with Thalberg gone and the creative faculties of the organization now dysfunctional, the studio would still be able to coast on the the coattails of having this great collection of stars and directors and writers, but they wouldn't maximize the value of having them. They didn't do a great job re-signing all of the right ones. And then crucially, they wouldn't be ready for the next era that would come after this studio star system that they'd created. So just like when you had Irving Wahlberg there, luckily, coincidentally, uh, fatefully, who shepherd the studio from the silent era into the sound era, what they will need and they won't have is someone to come along in the late 40s and early 50s in that similar role to shepherd them through what will happen with talent in Hollywood, which is them being freed from these long-term contracts and they will be getting much larger paychecks. They'll be independent contractors, but they'll be getting much larger pieces of their movies. Unfortunately for MGM, Louis B. Mayer is not that guy, and he doesn't seem to know that he is not that guy. His bureaucratic decision-by-committee uh, system, in his opinion, works quite well. And in fact, what this system allows him to do is have free time to start doing what lots of rich people do, and he is very, very rich during this period. In fact, starting in the late 30s, he is named, for the first time, the highest-paid executive in America, uh, beating out, in the number two spot, the head of General Motors. Louis B. Mayer will actually be the highest-paid executive in America for like eight or nine years in a row, from the late 30s into the 1940s. And if you are a very wealthy person, 
during this time period, maybe during any time period, at some point you want to develop some rich person hobbies. Louis B. Mayer decided to go with the sport of kings, horse racing. Mayer first gets into horse racing in 1937. He buys a couple of horses and he enters one of them into the San Diego Handicap. And he, his horse won the race and he was hooked after. That. And he decided to build a horse stable more or less the same way he built a film studio. Uh, that is, uh, well, he was going to invest extensively in promising stock, selected on the customary basis of bloodlines, and then expect the stars to emerge, end quote. From Louis B. Mayer's point of view, it kind of makes sense to think of picking horses the same way he picks actors. Again, as we said at the top of this podcast, it's a very crass thing to say, but just put yourself into his mind. Go back to that era. Studio chiefs did think of actors not as, as human beings as much as they did as just assets on the balance sheet, right? You'd sign one to an exclusive contract and you sort of own them. And Louis B. Mayer saw his job as a studio chief to hire a bunch of directors, just like he'd hire a bunch of trainers. And then when it came to the horses, well, who are the horses but but actors? They're the acting talent who gets out there and does what needs to be done. He seemed to have an eye for actors. For example, he would tell you he discovered Greta Garbo on a trip to Europe and brought her back to the U.S. and signed her for a contract. And she became a big star in the silent era and in the sound era. So from Mayer's point of view, he's a great judge of talent and a great organizer of people and systems. And this is why Mayer considered it a compliment when he likened the actress Greer Garson to his horse Busher in one of his town hall style talks at MGM. He's comparing a horse to a person, and he genuinely means that as a compliment. That's the mentality of Louis B. Mayer during this time, and how he sees people who work with him and for him. That's the way he sees his business and his role in it. It's such a fascinating example that illustrates how a person thinks. To be clear, I think that's a very insensitive and inappropriate analogy for Mayer to be making. But I do think it's worth mentioning what we talked about at the top of this podcast, which is this is a completely unrelated activity, horse racing, in which Mayer became wildly successful. His race horses not only won, but he actually made money with it. He was also very successful, even more successful, in fact, at the horse breeding aspect of owning a stable, which is more esoteric and, and some would argue even harder than the racing aspects. And he made a ton of money with uh, this horse. Initially, I called it a hobby. Really, it became a business. The similarities to the film industry that I would see at that time are it, it was one of these where talent was hard to identify, except for certain people, like the trainers who had it. Mayor didn't have it, but he knew how to find the right people. So I think the executive hiring analogy does hold here. The concept of stars emerging makes sense. What makes a star? There's an intangibility to both success in sport and success in acting. And I think Mayor would felt like he might be attuned to that. And a lot of the bets are not going to pay off, but certain horses are going to perform really well and they will pay for a lot of losers. You know, it's essentially a portfolio strategy. I think that was naturally something that Mayer understood and he was comfortable with losses in some areas and gains in other areas and for everything balancing out. You have to have that kind of mentality to run a studio just like you would have to have it running a venture capital firm or any kind of uh, investment firm. You have to have that as a film studio head. You have to have that if you're operating a, a horse business like Mayer did. However, as the 1940s wore on, get into around 1946, the MGM studio is, is doing quite well. The whole film industry is having a boom year in 46. But Nicholas Skank is seeing how, frankly, 
successful mayor is in his horse racing, and everyone's a little frustrated around the studio that you can't really get mayor on the boat at the studio. The guy seems to be at the horse track or at a stable all the time. He's clearly got his eye off the ball. And so Nicholas Gang finally convinces Mayer, you got to get rid of this horse thing. And so Mayer starts selling off some horses. And over a period of a couple of years, he finally sells it all. He sells all of his horses. He sells his big stable 70 miles outside of downtown L.A. that he had built, uh, which people said was the finest stable on the West Coast. He sold it all. Um, and so ended Mayer's roughly 10-year journey going from nowhere in horse racing to becoming one of the most powerful and influential and successful horse breeders and racers in America, perhaps the world. It's a weird little side story, but like I said, it's fairly illuminating about Mayer. So with that fun tangent around horse racing behind us, we will rejoin the main story for its conclusion. The post-World War II years were not kind to the film industry. Film revenues peaked in 1946, and then sank. A couple of things contributed to this, one of which was oversaturation of the market. The film industry, like so many high-growth industries throughout time, is prone to boom and bust, right? Overinvestment followed by oversaturation, followed by a hollowing out, and consolidation, and then subsequent growth again. So there's just a cyclicality to this. But also, there was a long-term trend that was going to completely change the game for all of the film companies, and that's television. There were about 40,000 television sets in 1945, and they were pretty much all in bars. People didn't have them in their houses. But in just four years, that number would grow from 40,000 to 4 million. And in another 10 years, it'll grow from 4 million to like 40 million. And subsequently, film industry profits fell through the floor. Lowe's corporation profits sank from $18 million in 1945 to $4 million in 1938. So in just three years, profits went down by like 80%. Of course, Louis B. Mayer is not sitting on his hands during this period. He's doing stuff. He reorganizes the studio again. What does he do? He basically reorganizes with more of the same strategy. He reinforces these executive ranks in between the creative people and the top of the studio. He doesn't change the culture. He doesn't actually make meaningful personnel swaps just yet. But it's basically shuffling the deck chairs around. This is really where... The lack of a Thalberg character is showing itself as a problem. When, when the industry was booming, everything was fine not having that creative force there. But now without that creative leadership, they really are floundering. And they're not the only ones in the industry to be going through rough times. Viewer tastes are changing in a couple of meaningful ways. One of which is over time, viewers have gotten more sophisticated. This is still true today. You look at stories and characters today, they're much more complex and nuanced than they were 100 years ago or 50 years ago. There's a march of progress toward, uh, toward what we might call realism or versions of realism. The other one is immediately post-World War II. Stories and characters that had been very popular just a few years earlier maybe not so popular anymore. And especially problematic for Louis B. Mayer, his kind of movies, these virtuous movies, he was always against the gangster pictures and things like that, that Warner Brothers and places like that would make. He didn't like that. He, he was always the guy who wanted to make the, the movies his mother would have liked and approved of. And he was not able to adapt to the, the changing tastes of viewers. And Mayer realizes that he's going to have to try to replace Thalberg. This system of having a layer of a bunch of executives on top of the creatives, it's just not working. So finally, he finds a guy named Dory Sherry, who was running RKO Pictures at the time. Shory had come up as a, a young writer at MGM, actually. So Sherry comes over. He was really unhappy at, at RKO, but he was seen as a top guy, not unlike Thalberg in a bit, right? Running a poorly managed company, but he was running his part of it quite well. So Mayer brings him over, and Sherry does a very good job. 
and the studio profits had turned around. And they were making a lot of movies that had aged quite well. The Asphalt Jungle, Father of the Bride, and American in Paris are the kind of movies that come out during this time. This is when the problems begin. And the way they will begin is so human and stupid. It's something we can all relate to. The most mundane of things will be the catalyst for a, a series of dominoes falling, which will result in Louis B. Mayer being forced to resign. The way it starts, it kind of feels like you might be getting into an argument with your significant other or your roommate in which it was somebody's turn to take out the trash. So the other person makes a passive aggressive remark about it. And they counter with, well, you didn't do the dishes last week. And then it goes back and forth. And next thing you know, the fight has escalated. And now you're talking about really emotional, hurtful stuff um, that's been simmering for months or years. It's what's about to happen between Louis B. Mayer and Nicholas Skank. Skank will decide he wants to expand the number of executives at the company who have Lowe's Corporation stock. And he's going to give it to about half a dozen executives. And one of those executives is Dory Sherry. Well, Dory Sherry worked for Louis B. Mayer, and Louis B. Mayer didn't know about this. And Mayer finds out about it after it's happened, and he calls Nicholas Skank, and he flips out. He says, Dory Sherry works for me. If this is going to happen, I should have been consulted, and I should have been there to give the message myself. And it's such an innocuous thing, right? It's good news. We're giving Dory Sherry stuff to keep him here because he's doing a good job. Why can't we all be happy about that? Nope. Not in this company, not in these days. And Mayer and Skank have this escalating argument that goes on over a period of weeks. And Dory Sherry gets dragged into this thing, and he's being uh, forced to pick sides. And Mayer now doesn't trust uh, Dory Sherry, and he's accusing him of not being loyal. And finally, Mayer gives Nicholas Skank an ultimatum. He says, this isn't working. You've got to pick between Sherry and me. You can't keep us both. And Nicholas Skank reacts the way a lot of people might react when given an ultimatum by somebody. They say, I don't need you. I'll stick with Dory Sherry. He's the guy running the studio these days anyway. And so just like that, Nicholas Skank asks for Louis B. Mayer's resignation in 1951. It will be effective at the end of August 1951. And that is the end for Louis B. Mayer. And just as Louis B. Mayer's time comes to a close, so too does the era that he defined, this era of the star studio system where he and Thalberg had so many actors and writers and directors under exclusive contracts for years and years. And they could play God, deciding which movies got made and with which stars. That system was going away, or at least it was evolving. It wasn't another studio who would inherit the mantle of most powerful company in town. That would be the Music Corporation of America, which we covered in our previous episode. It was MCA, the talent agency, who changed the balance of power and would control which movies got made and with which stars. And what's funny is this was seen coming when Lou Wasserman of MCA negotiated Jimmy Stewart's contract for Winchester 73, in which Jimmy Stewart got this unprecedented kind of profit-sharing agreement with the studio. And it wasn't with MGM, but he did the deal with William Getz, who turned out to be Louis B. Mayer's son-in-law. And when Mayer found out about this deal with Jimmy Stewart, he flipped out and he called his son-in-law and he said, the deal you made with Jimmy Stewart is going to be the end of Hollywood. It's going to be the end of movies. Well, it wasn't the end of movies. But it was the end of Louis B. Mayer's world. 